We're back! We're back! It's distraction. I'm through. That's raw. How are you doing, raw? I'm good, man. How are you? I am excellent. I'm even more excellent because I know that our guest today is very special. It's Jamel Hill. Holy shit. Contributing wow. writer for The Atlantic, author of the new memoir, Uphill, out right now. Jamel, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's a pleasure. Oh, that's great. How much, uh, we're going to talk about you and your book first. How much do you want to talk about you, or are you so sick to death of yourself that you cannot bear it a second longer? Yeah, because we could do NFC North chat. If yeah, you'd rather, if that's more fun. A hundred percent. We can talk about the up and coming Detroit Lions if you want. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you all uh, being sensitive to that. But the good news is that we're recording this where I'm not in the thick of my book tour. So I actually have had a few weeks of a break of talking about myself. So so I'm I'm replenished. So it's fine if we want to talk about me because I can't say I want to discuss the NFC North either. Uh, But no, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, just I mean, just, you know, I'm not a Lions fan. I I do want them to do well because I'm from Detroit. And my husband is a huge Lions fan. So right now, this is his euphoria. Like he is, he has, he bought into the Kool-Aid before this season started. All Lions fans do. Every year they have Super Bowl expectations, regardless of what the 50 or 55 plus year history has said. So right now, like mentally, he's in such a great place. I was like, oh, you finally know what it's like to feel like your team is not a total embarrassment. So I'm very happy for him. Down the world at six and seven. That's right. To, to, like, just not to, you know, make you have to go back uh, to that space. Did you have to, like, do the real heavy, like, car wash junket experience for the book? Oh, where yeah. Where you were kind of telling the same story about your youth, like, three or four times a day. <laughs> yeah, and it was a different experience. Because, uh, let's see, the first week the book came out, I uh, did three cities that week. And total, it was like a seven or eight city uh, tour just in this initial part. And then I'll probably go back out once it's been released in paperback. But yeah, it is a little bit different than when I've promoted other things that I've started. Like promoting shows that I'm a part of is totally different. They ask you about the show, what to expect, uh, you know, your co-host, those kind of things. So it's a little different. It's like you're talking about yourself, but not really. Uh, But with a memoir, and especially one that is written as personally as mine, is then the question line of questions are a little different. And in some cases early on, they were a little jarring because I'm not used to talking that intimately about myself before a wider audience. So when you get a question, even though I understood why I got the question because it's in the book, when you get a question of what was it like when your mother showed you crack? I was like, oh, this is not really the question (laughs) that I'm used to getting. So I was like, you know, I just have to be like, oh, that was jarring. But I understood why they asked it because it is an experience that I write about in the book so you thought they would ask you about the nfc north and they didn't i was fooled i was thinking like oh so now we're discussing crack and all right got it (laughs) you know what uh to that end uh let's ask you what was more difficult for you uh the actual writing of the book because writing a book is a pain in the ass it's a book or summoning the will to put into the book what you put into it because it's very personal gets into the the details not just of your life your mother's life your grandmother's life and everything that happened to them and to you, how hard was that to make yourself vulnerable on the page? So the vulnerability part wasn't as difficult. Um, the writing aspect, as you point out, is kind of difficult because I'm not used to writing based off a book deadline. You know, to some degree, a large degree, journalists, uh, especially those who have been used to working for traditional publications, uh, they we are used to writing based off like a very near deadline. Like, OK, you might have a week to do this, a couple days to turn this column around. So there, it's usually more immediate. It's a deadline you can see tangibly. <laughs> Yeah, much right. different. Yeah, much different than when a book publisher is like, "Oh, you're in February," and they say, "Hey, can you have us something by the end of June?" And you're like, "What?" <laughs> like the it just the time doesn't even feel real. And what uh, so the actual process of writing was difficult because I'm used to writing in more of a traditional media space, and what I had to eventually do, uh, and it was I had to put myself on a schedule, and it wasn't advice. It was advice that was given to me by a very prolific author, Walter Mosley. He told me that no matter where he is in the world, he writes for at least two hours a day, same time, because that's what allows him to creatively uh, not just flourish, but he had to approach writing as a discipline. The book forced me to approach it that way, and I had never done that in my career. I 
I remember mostly saying something that really stuck with me, was, which was, he said, I would write in the morning and then the afternoon I would percolate. And, and that's kind of how I've always viewed writing. Like, it's great that, that the writing itself begets more writing, begets more ideas. And that to me is the, the sort of joy of it, even when you have to write a fucking book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the part of it I've never been able to get my head around is that idea. Not just the stuff that you, I mean, I think if I got a deadline where someone was like, all right, well, let's circle back in six months, I would dissociate. Like, I would not, there's no way that I would respond to that in, in like a constructive way. I would just sort of be like, oh, great. All right. So I got five months off and then I really got to get cracking uh, to make sure that we make this work. But the idea of like imposing that discipline on yourself and using it sort of affirmatively instead of thinking of it as like something hung around your neck i've never been able to get my head around the idea of just like doing it spending those hours and being like all right good like i'm done or like now i'm adding to whatever tomorrow's total will be well at first it was hard to get used to because i wasn't used to writing on a schedule and certainly not the time of day that i chose because i chose something like 6 a.m to 8 a.m right (laughs) because because i'm a glutton obviously i was like i had to choose the morning and I had to choose very specific hours because I wanted it to get started. I had to get the writing process started before the day actually started. Because once the day gets started, it could take on a life of its own. And next thing you know, you're in a meeting, you got a Zoom, you got this, you got that. And it's like, I didn't want I didn't want to be fluctuating the time every day. And even though I, many days I would write early, come back later, write some more, because then I'd really be in, in, in a groove and felt like the creative juices were flowing. But it was it was very difficult at first to do that. And what I I think what also helped is that I took uh, six months off from the Atlantic to not write anything for them. I didn't want to be writing in other spaces and writing my book at the same time. And I think that was also helpful. OK, so now that you managed to write the book and you've gone on the tour, we can ask you the hard questions and. Maybe this time they won't jar you as much as they did when you first got them. from audience. Right. <laughs> um, OK. You write about your past a lot. Again, your mother's past, your your grandmother's past, um, lot of drug uh, abuse, domestic violence in your family. So I want to go from there to say how much of that past informed your decision to become a journalist uh, and the journalist that you are today? Well, I, I would say this is that I think it informs how I write in the sense of that there are so many different types of um, situations I'm able to relate to and also that I can kind of put myself in because I've been on the other side of it. So people now know if you read my book, I, I think it gives you a good idea of what shaped my politics and why I do think the way that I do about certain issues. What the, I think the main the reason or the main way it had an impact on me becoming a writer, period, is that I needed something where I felt kind of whole and complete and writing was it. Writing gave me an outlet. It was a vessel for me. It was a comfort for me. It was a safe haven for me. And even though initially I started off more writing creatively in terms of short stories and miniature novels that I would write and and more on that, that end and eventually gravitated to journalism, the whole point was that writing was a refuge. And because of the issues with addiction and abuse and violence that were going on in my family, it gave me something else to pour into that I needed to in order to express those feelings of rage, of anger, of disappointment, of heartbreak. I could express that somewhere else and feel as if I was being heard and feel as if I was really, you know, kind of um, transporting myself into another world. That's why I always love fiction, you know, and thought my first book would always be fiction is because fiction allows you to create the world as it should be or as you want it to be. And I love the power in that. It gave me a sense of not just truth, but it gave me a sense of agency that I did not have in my life. So from that standpoint, the problems in my family pushed me to writing. And uh, it's no shortage of material either, just from a, like a clinical standpoint. Like it's fascinating. Like it, like it's a lot of stuff that happened. Yeah, it is. And I know, you know how it is. I think when people know you in a public space, everybody assumes just because you arrive at a certain point, whatever point they feel like is a point of success, they assume that they kind of know who you are and they know your makeup and they know maybe even your background. Like I have to laugh heartedly when 
I'm called an elitist. <laughs> I was like, oh, you have no idea, right? right. Um, I'm just like an elitist. That's interesting. And it's an interesting term that they're now associating uh, with journalists overall because they're only looking at the journalists who are on TV that are known, not understanding that the majority of journalism is very much a working class profession. And that was my roots as well as coming up approaching journalism in a working class way until I got to ESPN, which changes the trajectory and, you know, the lives of, of, of many, many people. But yeah, I mean, it, I know it was a lot to unpack in this, but I, I felt like, um, you know, a memoir is a one-time deal usually. And so if you're going to do it, and especially considering how important transparency is in journalism period, I was going to treat myself like my own interview subject and just lay it all out there. And, you know, people react how they react. But I felt like it was the right approach um, because nobody's going to tell your story better than you. So why leave anything on the table and give somebody an opportunity down the road to tell um, my story in, in a different way than which I would have told it? You wrote um, that your own childbirth was so complicated that doctors told your father at one point he would have to choose which person to save in the delivery room, you or your mom. Both of you survived, and you thought that was by the grace of God. Um, and your father never told you who he chose, and you never asked him. But I wanted to ask you, do you still wonder about that conversation? Do you still guess as to what he might have decided? I don't wonder about it. Now, maybe that's how why I didn't ask. Maybe there's a part of me that feels um, th that feels like I kind of know the answer. But, you know, in reflection, I have thought about, like, do I really know the answer? I think, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because this is a conversation me and my husband have had. We don't have any kids, but this came up when we did our marriage counseling, right? Is that like, okay, uh, we did our marriage counseling. They gave us this workbook, which is filled with all sorts of fascinating and crazy scenarios. And one of which was that. And I was going back and forth about it, like, oh, but, you know, I've lived my life. The baby hasn't lived theirs. Like, let them live their life. And he is of the opinion that he was like, we can always make another baby. I can't make another you. <laughs> I mean, you know, not to sound cold-blooded, but it's... We can it's, just go back to the pet store and get a baby that looks just like <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, but it... It is logical, though. It's like the the wife or the spouse is somebody that, you know, yes, you can say, oh, you can get remarried. And yeah, that may be true, but you can create another baby like that's not to diminish what the baby means. So I would have hoped that my father would have picked my mother. But at the same time, I was like, can I really say that? Because I turned out to be pretty awesome. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> is that is that what you thought he chose? That's what I thought he would he would choose is that it would it would be my mother because I would think that he would have kind of the same mentality like you can have other children like my mother is one of one even though what does make it complicated is they weren't married and they had a very rocky relationship but it was a rocky relationship which my father at the moment he wanted to be a part of my mother was a little more unsure because they did have issues of abuse and alcoholism my father at that time was addicted to drugs. Uh, my mother was not. And so there were other issues that were complicating that. So maybe the answer isn't as simple and clear cut as I think it is in my mind. Well, the other thing is that, you know, if you're choosing between a wife and, an, and a child who has not been conceived yet or has not been born yet, one is an unknown quantity. You know you, you know who your wife is. You've known your wife for X number of years. You love your wife, et cetera, or your, or, or, or your, um, your girlfriend or, or the mother of your child, right? But your child, you don't know that person yet, right? So, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, if my wife and I want to have a fourth child, I'd be like, fuck that. I don't want a fourth child. If we had a fourth child and they grew up and I'd be like, oh my God, I can't imagine my life without this fourth child. What a, what a goddamn miracle. But I don't have to know that child right now, so I'm just happy with the tombstone. See that that's a, that's another one too. Is that you don't know what you're you're getting, um, and I guess not to sound callous, if you if you make that choice and then the kid winds up being like a tremendous asshole, then you're like, oh man, I, I really <laughs> I made the wrong call here. <laughs> like, what am I doing? So yes, and it's also that the known versus the unknown, and the fact that you know, it, you feel like it would be a lot harder to duplicate having that spouse or that partner, significant other than it would be to have a child. So yes. So you don't, you don't write about lightweight stuff at the Atlantic, but this is so much heavier grade than like, I mean, cause if you look at like the, the 
columns and stuff that you do. I mean, there's some sports in it. There's a lot of culture in it. It is all a massive downshift from, like, the existential questions of, like, who your parents would choose in a scenario like this. Metabolically, what was it like getting back into just blogging, like, getting a <laughs> post up every week? Like, was that a relief after spending all that time in this? Or, like, nope. did you find that you were just sort of, like, a fish takes the water back on it? Uh, no, it was just a relief to finish it. I mean, honestly, right. a relief to finish the book. Uh, you know, once it's sent off, you know, once I sent off the original draft and we start getting into the editing process, the sense of relief that I had, I couldn't even tell you. But then, you know, sort of a new paranoia takes place because you worry about... Did I get everything right? Factually, whatever. Like, is there a art- typo? Yes. Know. Oh, the type. Like, I had so much anxiety over typos. I can't. Fuck yeah. I can't. I mean, I can't even begin to explain that. And when they sent me the advanced re- reader copy, which was still being edited, the, the actual manuscript was still being edited, but they sent me the advanced reader copy, and it had a ton of typos in it. And I was livid. I was just like, what if this is what happens when the book comes out and we can't get this back? And it's just a book is so much more permanent. So my level of anxiety was a lot different. And so, you know, to answer your question, when I finally did resume writing for the Atlantic, and the good thing about my writing schedule for them is that I'm not it, it, it it's it's certain uh, it's not a thing where I have to write every Wednesday. You know, I right. sort of write when I feel like I have something to say, when I feel like there's an issue of the moment that needs to be addressed. So I'm writing very much by feel. And uh, I think that was more of relief that I didn't feel the pressure that once I returned to writing that I had to start churning out like 20 columns over the next month that I could still write on the same normal schedule. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess on some level it did feel better, you know, sort of not writing about like addiction and trauma and all those things and then be able to, to shift to, you know, um, lighter topics like Brittany Griner. So it's yeah, just like, like right, lighter topics, like <laughs> political prisoners, right. anti-Semitism, like, and, you know, underfunded HBCUs, correct. Like things that just kind of, you know, yeah. roll right off your back. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about ESPN uh, for a moment. Cause you talk about it also in the book, you were, um, uh, famously suspended from ESPN for calling Donald Trump uh, a white supremacist back when he was president. Uh, let's start with an obvious question. Exactly how many things has Trump done since then to vindicate you uh, since your suspension? <laughs> I mean, how long is this podcast? Like, we can literally... I was going to say, we, like, just a this rough <laughs> number of how many digits are in the number that you would say. <laughs> right. To- I mean, godly. It's, because it, it, especially at that point, with him being a regular Twitter presence, it was... It was basically daily, like he was doing something almost every day. And even now when, you know, he we're recording, I mean, we brought up uh, Brittany Griner earlier, but like the things that he said about Brittany Griner, about how she didn't deserve to be freed and is a American hating basketball player. Like he's just he's because it's intrinsically who he is. He's always showing up that way. So it's never not a part of his discourse in some kind of way, some kind of bigoted belief, some kind of inflammatory comments like it's just how he rolls. Um, but, you know, I, I I don't look back on that because a lot of people kind of want me to take the I told you so moment. And I don't really take that because it comes with a cost, not me saying I told you so. But the fact is that I hate that I was so right about it and even more right than I knew I was when I said it. And so I, I, I hate that because I hate it for our country and I hate it for it. I hate it for us because of what has happened to our political discourse as a result and how all these elections that we've endured since the um, presence of Donald Trump have all felt like traumatic experiences instead of being excited about exercising your right to vote, which there is a a, a bit of that, I'm sure. It's also voting... Yeah, and you get a wonderful sticker, but it's also <laughs> voting under this traumatic um, mindset of, okay, I'm voting to basically save my life every time. Yeah. It's just like, I'm not going there just to vote on some some millage increase of like, oh, what? We got to pay 50 more cents because the roads need funding. I would love to go into the voting booth and just be able to vote on that and say, oh, this is, you know, yay or nay about something that even if it happens, it's not going to ruin my life as opposed to going into the ballot box these last, you know, couple times and being like, okay, so my life and the life of many others are on the line. My, my identity and existence, that does not feel like a good way to vote sometimes. Right. Well, also, you don't want it to be a moment that defines you or your career, because I think after that, 
after your suspension, you became, I think, not unlike Colin Kaepernick in that your name could simply be invoked to get a reaction among shitheads and dickheads online. Um, and that's like, that's not fun. It sucks. And it's, it feels like I want to ask you, is, is it hard to divorce yourself from a discourse that really is not, it's not really about you. It's just using you to just recycle bullshit over and over again. It, it, it wears on you. You know, it, it, it certainly has worn on me that, you know, people use me as some kind of bat signal and usually in all the, the worst ways uh, because of either things I've said, things I do say for generally things that I stand for. They, they're using it on purpose to um, invoke a, a, a very specific reaction. And at times that can be angering. At times it can be, frankly, hurtful. And uh, I know that we've been all, especially, you know, you're in the, the public eye and, and you write and you know that when you write anything that you're leaving it up for public discourse. So that's kind of part of the, the purpose of what comes along with the gig of writing. But, you know, I, I don't like the disingenuousness of the uh, attacks because I, I like I know what you're doing. I can see right through it. And it, it does kind of, you know, like sort of eat away at you because, you know, you you don't you don't have the luxury of of responding because then that just makes it worse and then they get exactly what they wanted to to begin with which is for you to respond to their dickishness and i'm just like i it 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 just becomes sometimes a very tough balancing act for me i can imagine so because you know like i've gotten blowback for stuff i've written but it's not the same it's just not it's not anywhere close because who i'm a white guy you're a black woman and so I am someone who, you know, if, if people start taking a dump on me for like saying I didn't like the white Lotus or whatever, fuck, like whatever, who cares? Or, or if I support uh, a, a black person or a gay person, that doesn't give the bad faith actors the same rush they get for going directly at those people themselves. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. Like, that's what they're looking for is to, to incite a level of chaos. Cause it, listen, there's a, there's a lot of people, especially in, you know, the media space or just have a public platform their entire agenda is about creating chaos. It's not about solving right. problems. It's not about bringing a, another nuanced layer to a particular national conversation. It's, that's why you can't please them. You know, and every, that's why the goalposts move so much with them. Because, okay, even if you say agree with them on something, they're going to pull out something else and be like, no, no, but I disagree because of this. I was like, oh, so you're just a chaos agent. I get it. Uh, it's annoying, but, you know, I sort of get it. There's something really jarring about that. I think that's really well said. But as like realizing that that is actually the political program that like keeping people upset, like keeping them hanging around through the next commercial break. But then that that's not just I mean, if that started as a cable news thing, that at this point, that is now like leading the actual political party <laughs> that was supposedly being served by that cable network around that like it's flipped such that those methods are now like just strictly because there isn't like a political program that you can really point to there that like the Republicans are going to legislate through the Supreme Court if they legislate at all. They don't really have like you can't put your ideas in front of the public if you are them because people fucking hate those ideas. <laughs> and yet right. There is there's still that element of like needing to have people to be upset at all the time that that is just basically like the whole of not just like that network, but that that's. The whole idea of it, that you got to keep these people head up. Like, I can't imagine, I mean, of course, there's like a dehumanizing aspect to it. Like, if you are telling people like, oh, well, you know, like, I agree with her on some stuff. You know, I don't always agree with her on uh, her NFC North takes or whatever. Like, Jamel Hill is an interesting person. But, like, they can't do that. They, you have to be a stand-in for everything that that audience hates. Yeah. That level of dehumanization, like, I mean, I can't, again, like, I... You, just said what it feels like but that is it seems a level beyond uh the sort of like play debate that used to be the stock and trade of cnn and still sort of is at espn like there's something much darker running under it well i mean it's it's sort of we have become a culture that's really into arguing and arguing as sport has become the definitive baseline i think for a lot of how tv is is done you know i was asked about uh i did an, an another media um, hit and, and you know was asked about the exchange that took place between uh, Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp that recently went viral where it seemed very personal and it seemed 
um, what I thought to be crossing a lot of boundaries that, you know, there are certain programs that there's an expected discourse of combative debate. You know, when you watch first take exactly what you're getting, you know, when, you know, you watch undisputed exactly what you're getting. That is the core and intrinsic to who those programs are. And that's that's what they traffic in and what they're supposed to do. But, you know, I, I never have been attracted to doing that kind of television. I mean, a, a playful debate, playful ribbing, a little bit of roasting, all good. But it just is very eye-opening for me when I watch some of these uh, clips and programs and I see how quickly it can get very personal and cross certain boundaries like I when me and Michael Smith my former co-host at ESPN you know who I did five years of, of television with we never came into any show that we did together with the idea or intention or an agenda item to embarrass the other person Never was on the table because we. Well, that's had a not friend. good television, Jamel. Uh, apparently, it's not. I mean, and it's not sexy to say that. Like, and we would disagree all the time, and we would, you know, roast each other, and make fun of each other. But it was in a way that you're accustomed to friends doing this. But the type of shots that I see them take at each other, I'm like, I don't know how you're in a working environment and this is what you say to each other on tv because i don't know what you say to each other in private because i'm like golly and so we never right. wanted that to be a part of the show and listen i'm not ripping those guys who do it they're able to do it god bless them if they like it i love it but it's just never been the type of television i wanted to do that was centered on not just chaos but a meanness that's there are you that's happy the part of it that oh, I always was confused by? It was like, that's a choice that people are making. Like, that's your leisure time right there. You know, like you get a lot of stress and a lot of conflict in your day to day, no matter what you're doing, just by moving through the world. And the idea of being like, I'm going to unwind at the end of my day with Skip Bayless being so mean to Shannon Sharp that he takes his glasses off. And then as soon as he takes his glasses off, Skip starts making little Muppet sounds. That's not chill TV to me. <laughs> no. Like, that that sucks. <laughs> that's two guys who are going to fight. That's like, I. I I unwinded one night to, to read a book and it was a book about the history of coffee and like the history of coffee is like really fucking dark. So it's <laughs> one of those things where you got to do like a thumbnail history of colonial brutality before <laughs> yeah, you get to the so like, espresso was invented in Naples. Yeah, I like, bought it because I was like, oh, I like coffee. Let me read up about coffee. And it was like, well, we destroyed 90% of Central America just so we could cultivate coffee there. <laughs> and I read it in bed and I'm like, you know what? This is really educational, but I don't feel relaxed. I want to go... Yep. Put my head through a fucking but wall, but you man. know what there is I mean I I can't be a total hypocrite here either because like one of my favorite shows or leader in the clubhouse at the moment is Real Housewives of Potomac now <laughs> okay. hey I'm the, ten the, minutes away from you you know I totally understand that but those shows make me so tense mm. I really just can't hack it but I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about like I have a lot of friends that watch shows too and it's like. I guess you just sort of have to accept that they're a little bit less real or something. Like, how does it? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. You? I think that's what it is. Is that you? You know that they are. I, I wouldn't say they're not being authentic. Is that they're purposely being put in situations to maximize the drama, um, and. Right. You know, but there there is something to be said for looking at other people's lives and being like, "Woof, I thought I had it bad. My goodness, like that is <laughs> that is like something else." And you know, there's something about drama and all this kind of stuff. So I do think, um, you know, even though I know, you know, women watch the shows like Undisputed, but I think it's a largely predominantly male audience. Like Undisputed and First Take are the men's version of Real Housewives. That's what it is. That's... Like what, it, what, what, we're, what Real Housewives does for me is what it does for a lot of men because I couldn't, <laughs> I mean, they can take offense. Like, I mean, I'm not, but watching the reaction to that Skip and Shannon clip was very interesting because it was so many dudes like, oh, I can't wait to see you the next day. Like talking about it like you would a soap opera. Like wait till the next right. episode. It's on a cliffhanger. And he came at him like this and that. And I would have done this and this and that. Same reaction if you watch a reality show. Same thing. Hey, speaking of speaking of cliffhangers, <laughs> let's take an ad break. And we'll come right back with Jamel Hill. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back with Jamel Hill. And we'll talk about you for a little bit, but then we're going to also talk about actual current sports. So I wanted to ask you, since we were talking about ESPN earlier, um, are both you and Michael Smith, your old co-anchor, are you guys pleased with essentially, 
you know, what has how your lives and careers have evolved since um, uh, since you guys uh, left ESPN? Or do you like do you ever see SportsCenter on a TV at the airport and sort of wonder how things might have been different? You ever see Michael doing stuff on NFL Network and ever think, oh, what if we were still together? Things like that. Um, well, I do think, um, you know, I'm I'm very happy with with what I'm doing now and, you know, being able to contribute to so many different platforms now working more on, on the producing side and behind the scenes and um, doing film and TV projects like I love the type of storytelling that I'm able to do now and really able to expand beyond even what I saw at all uh, saw myself doing I should say at ESPN but I do think that there will always be something kind of bittersweet about our experience there uh, one and we he and I have, have talked about this uh, you know personally so I'm not talking out of school is that when we did his and hers as much as a grind as it was and we if we were if we did have a regret or something we wish we would have done differently it would be that we didn't appreciate what we were creating because we didn't know what we were creating and it was a lot of fun a lot of hard work but at the same time we always we had this chip on our shoulder that you know we felt like we were disrespected and overlooked and so that chip drove us to really break every television rule that we could and because we had that chip in process we did not appreciate the creative process that we had and how unique that really was and it wasn't until we got the sports center that we were like oh the shit we were doing on his and hers it's like it's not gonna work here because the vibe is different you know it's kind of like if you're you know, at one of those clubs that has different floors with different types of music. And so, yeah, you might be at the part where they're playing like 90s R&B and you're in there vibing like, oh, this is such a good time. You know, you go upstairs and, you know, they're playing like techno. You're like, not the same vibe. <laughs> Cannot. Right. Exactly. Can't bring the same, you know, can't dance the same way up here. Not vibing the same way up here. Totally different crowd up here. So it's different. And even though Sports Center had all the pretty things that we we thought we wanted and felt like we deserved, you know, brand new seventeen million dollar studio as opposed to being in a closet uh, when we were doing his and hers, triple the production staff, all the promotion, our own commercial marketing, we had all those things that we thought we wanted, and when we got them, because of what the creative process was, it made it much more un unfulfilling. Um, so also, you still to live in Bristol, right? Still had to live in Bristol, which Oof. in itself is its own partic particular sense of torment. But we, you know, I think it taught us a very important lesson. Or I just speak for myself. I think it taught me a very important lesson. Not only that, you know, bigger and, and prettier is not always better. But there's something to be said for appreciating the moments that you're in and not being so um, anxiety ridden or so anxious to move on to the next moment. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't wish, I don't know what we could have done differently, to be honest. Like, I don't regret taking the sports center job, even though it didn't turn out the way I expected. Certainly don't regret making the full-time move to television because this, these are all things that changed my life. But when you don't get to end things on your own terms, it, it does sit with you much differently than, than when you're able to. But, you know, to be honest, very few people get to dictate how they leave certain jobs. No, yeah, not not in this country. What do you think of ESPN uh, since you left? Like, do you watch it? Like, I'm not talking about like like Monday Night Football or like or right. like live game broadcast. Do you watch Sports Center? Do you watch? Do you watch I, First I, Take? I, I I don't really watch First Take um, very often. Um, it's funny because like I think my, my like my husband loves that show, so he watches it a little little bit more than 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 I do. Um, usually I'm, I'm not able to, I mean, we both have, you know, uh, busy work schedules, but you, you know, like when he works out early in the morning, cause on the West coast where we are first take is on at 7am. So it's kind of like before the work day gets started. So it's a little bit different, but I, yeah, I, I rarely watch it. Um, I'll catch some glimpses of it every now and again, not that I'm trying to avoid it, but I'd like to wake up watching, um, my favorite morning show, which is good day LA out here in LA. So I'm usually watching that to figure out like what's going on in LA or, or whatever. And, you know, do you, uh, I, did you get up early enough to watch the car chase of the morning every morning? But see, people don't know. Like that's underrated part of watching LA news is that every day they're gonna give you something. Okay, <laughs> you are gonna yeah. get something. Um, though, you get to sort of the like the degraded like real life version of heat every day <laughs> yes. before you had coffee, or really or, nice. or or or, co or cops. But I will say, yeah. coming up the ranks fast. 
are animal incidents. Animal incidents are big, like a big oh. story. Yes, they're big. A big story right now here in L.A. is that this mountain lion that apparently has been in existence or at least that has really been roaming, uh, you know, these these this L.A. area for like 10 years. Like he's going through some things. He's got like. You know, they it's it's a really sad. It's sort of a sad story because he probably we're to, very pro P twenty two. Yes, uh, website. Yeah, oh this. yes, the P twenty two. Yeah, I mean, just I think it's you know you gotta. <laughs> so yes, this is Barry wrote a, a post about it yesterday, and I didn't really know too much about it. I saw the pictures of the mountain lion being captured in a backyard in like yeah. the Hollywood Hills, yep. and I was like, that's interesting. I wound up feeling kind of like a little misty for P twenty two. No, I, I'm very, post, I'm very misty for P twenty two. Like they, they said he has an eye issue and that generally he stays away from people. But lately, you know, he's just been a little more cantankerous because they feel like his health is failing. I am invested yeah. in this story, so clearly right. very invested. But yeah, well, um, obviously, RIP to the chihuahuas that P twenty two was eating yes. that obviously precipitated yeah. this crisis, but. That's why it's a complicated the, story. Was all the footage of the the mountain lion in night vision, where like it looks at the camera of and like course. its pupils are like dead white? Of course, like, of course okay. it was. Right. So, but you know, I I watch, I watch my friends on you know uh, like on ESPN. Like I I, I would definitely catch Jalen and Jacoby. I I love tuning in to around the horn, and and while it may not be necessarily appointment television. You know, it, if it's on, I'll definitely watch it because, you know, these are a lot of the writers that I read. A lot of the writers I respect have personal relationships with. Um, so, yeah, Around the Horn and Jalen and Jacoby and, um, you know, Sports Center, uh, like L. Duncan and Kevin Nagandi, friends of mine. So it's like Michael Leaves. Like I watch some of my friends work beyond just the, um, uh, you know, just the, the live, you know, event programming that went, that people do or just, you know, like Ryan Clark and 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 Marcus Spears, like I, I, before, uh, Mark Marcus Spears kind of made this turn into heavy uh, NFL analysis and the chemistry he's been able to build with Ryan, with Dan Orlovsky, seeing Mina Kimes. Like every time I see the people I had relationships with at ESPN on air and doing their thing, and uh, seeing how much they've come into their own, like I I'm overjoyed for them. Uh, Jamel, are you as sad as I am that England got knocked out of the World Cup, or are you even sadder? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, she is. You the don't saddest. have to actually I am this, answer that question. I am very. I'm just. I'm distraught. Distraught is the word yeah. that I would use for I think England. Everybody being knocked out. We just wanted to see more English soccer players on their TV. I need to see some flushed-looking guys that look like they just got ejected from a pub. It's <laughs> important to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, don't come back, Trevor. And he's like, you wall. And like, that's that's what I'm. That's why I watch sports. Speaking of uh, being distraught, the Boston Celtics are legitimately extremely good. Probably the best team in the NBA. Uh, Jamel, what can we do about that? Is there anything? We can do about that? <laughs> and Jason Tatum looks like the front runner for MVP right now. I saw the game that they Ooh, had had with the Lakers last night. As you know, we're recording this podcast, which they won in overtime. They look extremely, extremely good. And, uh, you know, as much as um, it may pain someone like you is that you may just have to accept the fact that they're going to be good. And I don't think. Never. I do it. Listen, I'm I'm a Pistons fan. Our season is already over. Like, it's just. I mean, it's already over. Sorry, man. Yeah. Kate is out for the season. Yeah. I know. Kate is out for the season. Uh, But, you know, I guess the only thing I can look forward to is, oh, we get another lottery pick, which is great. Like, we're building a young foundation, that's for sure. But at some point, it would be great to see us making a move further into, uh, into relevance. But, yes, the Celtics are good. And. We're all gonna have to live with it. So you know, you know, I don't yeah. love to praise, uh, uh, you know, the Boston Celtics like growing up in Detroit, but like they're they're very good. And I think Jason Tatum is just such an amazing, excellent player. He's a he's the player that reminds me the most of Kobe. It's him. Yep, I think that's what he's going for, and yet I think he's like doing it in kind of a non toxic way. I was surprised at how close I came to actually getting there with them last year. Mm. Like by the time they got to the finals, they were pretty. They're entertaining. Dry, they have their shit together. Like, they were amazing. And, like, I'm just – there's something in me that does not cheer for a team in that uniform very readily. And yet, like, if you were to put any other uniform on them, I would have been like, ah, oh, these heroes. Like, they're giving <laughs> it their own. <laughs> <laughs> like, if they were the Memphis Grizzlies, you'd be like, oh, fuck, that right. team is rock and roll. And then you see, like, the entire Wahlberg family <laughs> sitting by the court, and you're like, no, no, get it together. Like, we're not doing this. I know. Right? It's, it's, it's tough. Um <laughs> – 
I do. I do. I do want to go back to your Pistons fandom because um, there is that moment where you really want to get past uh, that time uh, when you're a fan and you're already daydreaming about the draft even during the regular season. Like you don't. Like you're like, oh wow, okay. Our, we're, we lost, but oh, that might give us the number twelve pick. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't want this to be your reality for forever. And that, and in this regard, I'm jealous of of my husband because he's got the best of both for us, right? So his his Lions team is is doing great and better than they've done in a while. And the Lions have the Rams' first round pick, and the Rams are putrid right now. Yeah, so, they second or third pick in the draft. Yes, yeah, so now yeah, they're yeah. gonna get a top five pick, and they're already making inroads to be one of the better teams in, in the, it'll be a different conversation about the lions next year with the nfc north they've discovered something with jared goff obviously um a, another la throwaway if you will and so i was like wow you're in a really good position i mean with the pistons it's like we're irrelevant our number one draft pick is out uh and usually like i watch my college basketball team which is michigan state but i don't pay attention to the landscape of college basketball until after christmas now i gotta pay attention because i gotta look at okay who's who's gonna be our lottery pick you know come uh come this draft so it's just it is you know you you hate that feeling of when the draft is your your super bowl or your nba finals every year yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's the coldest shot of all is having to watch like reg regular season Big Ten conference games, <laughs> like just who are, scouting guys on Ohio State. Yeah, who, and they, and they're all gonna like, end like forty eight to forty one, and you're just like, why uh, am I watching this on a random Thursday night? <laughs> I so I made the choice to start watching Rutgers basketball years ago. Rutgers! Like I mean, at the, there it is. At the time, that was like I think when I first started, it was basically like a, a hangover related decision, and now I'm just like seeking them out. <laughs> now you're on, like, into the it. Game of the week, they're like, they match up really well with Minnesota. That's my fault. Like, I did that. I, I'm starting to wonder. I'm like, do you love yourself? It's like, oh, is this? No, I mean, it's like, it's, it, I want to say that it's a New Jersey thing, but also the answer to the, your question, and this is also an answer to the New Jersey thing, is like, honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> like, I want to believe I do, and yet I look at the evidence of the decisions that I make and I have real questions. Uh, let's remember, uh, Let's remember a guy, Jamel, uh, every week we remember a guy on the podcast, not necessarily a great athlete, but just an athlete of your, and you think, oh, I remember that guy. Would you like to remember a guy? Oh, would I like to remember a guy? I, um, I give you the guy. I don't make you remember the guy. Oh, you give I, me I a guy. You. Okay, tell me yeah, who the guy. Okay, all right, all right, good. I was like, ooh, ooh. No, yeah, I, wouldn't, I wasn't That's good. Hard. I was like, you know, it's not a test. It wouldn't be fair, you know. Anyway, in honor of your Detroit roots, and really in honor of your husband, uh, our guy of the week, it's Javid Best. You remember that guy? Uh, yes, Jamel I Hill? do. Yes, he played at Notre Dame, correct? Whoa, no, he no. played Cal, Berkeley, I think. Cal, oh, I'm Cal. sorry. Yes, you are yeah. correct. I do remember Javid Best. Yeah, because he was he was like a little, um, like a scat back wide receiver, running back type. Yeah, I do remember Javid yeah. Best. He was one of my favorite types of wide uh, running backs. It was just like a perfectly cubic man, like just very <laughs> short and very fast. Had a sort of a shorter career than he probably should have. Yeah, he got like 98 think, concussions during his career. Yeah, he did. I think that it's possible that our coworker Patrick Redford had the experience of running track against him in high school, which was and beat like, him. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> like it was not. one of those experiences that like anybody uh, that's had that experience of competing against a Division One athlete when they were just a normal high school yutz and has been dining out on it for years. It's that sort of thing where it was like, yeah, like it was the hurdles. Like none of us could jump over them, but like Javid Best actually set a national record. In that <laughs> well, it, it's, it's funny because when you said Javid Best, and don't ask me why my brain processed this, this way as Carlisle Holiday, speaking of remembering a guy. Oh wow. my God. I was Holy thinking shit. of, I, I don't know why I was thinking of Carlisle Holiday or whatever, but yes. You don't ever have to apologize for thinking of Carlisle Yeah, Holiday. no, on no. That's beautiful. What because, a great moment. Because I think if I recall, like Javid at best, you know, his speed, he was like a 4-3-4-4 guy. Mm -hmm. Like, he was oh, kind yeah. of ridiculous. And um, it is unfortunate because I think um, he was a first-round pick, first or – yeah, I think he was a first-round pick for the Lions. And I think he was actually a second, but uh, – second, First or second. Yeah. I was. I knew he was taken early, like somewhat early. Totally. We're, um, not, we're not getting you for that. Either. Yes, and, uh, you know, but the, the concussions, like, just ruined, you know, his career because I, I believe at Cal – he suffered like two pretty bad ones his last year that were like brutal. Yep. And a lot of people 
uh, if I recall the narrative, a lot of people thought the Lions shouldn't take him because of his concussion history and that it was a really big gamble. Yeah, there was no protocol yeah, yeah. back then either. It was no, like, it wasn't. oh, you're concussed? Well, yeah. well, here, have some Gatorade and you'll get back in. But Yeah, no, he had like concussion and spinal stuff. It was like one of those sort of, uh, I shouldn't be watching this yeah, type definitely. NFL careers, which is... Grim. Well yeah. then, let's uh, let's be let's go to a, a lighter note and let's open up the fun bag. Jamel Hill, this is from Jim. Jim writes in, "How do you think it would play out if instead of penalty kicks at the World Cup, they just added a second ball at the end of the extra time periods, and then just kept adding balls every ten minutes or so? Would you like to see multi-ball soccer in the extra time at the World Cup, Jamel Hill?" That suggestion reminds me of when I lived in Orlando, was a columnist there, and we used to play drunken soccer on Sunday mornings. Um, yeah, drunken soccer was awesome. I think I would propose drunken soccer over adding multiple balls because we would go, um, you know, a lot of times like we'd go for like brunch somewhere or just somewhere to have drinks, bring drinks to the field, get as drunk as possible, and then try to play soccer. I would like to see that happen at the World Cup in lieu of penalty kicks. Like, as soon as, you know, regulation is over, everybody start doing shots, and then you roll a ball out and see who can make the penalty kick. (laughs) As soon as extra time gets held up, you just hear cocktail shakers going on the sidelines, and you're like, oh, this is going to be bad. That's a better idea. (laughs) Yeah, I would be all for it, and they they would be about to start the drunken extra time period. And then Qatar officials would be like, I'm sorry, but you have to uh, substitute uh, sparkling not, water that. Uh, for that. We, we have to do a shot of Orangina. And yep. then you have to a lot of, of Oduls <laughs> being consumed, I assume, at the yep. at the World Cup. <laughs> Orangina. I'm glad that you snuck that in there, Drew. This is like a very rare instance Dude. of remembering a soft drink. Oh, my God. I used, to, ordinarily I, do I used to think Orangina was the absolute classiest shit in the world. Orangina <laughs> yeah. or apple teas, if that was on a restaurant menu when I was like 12, I was like, Fuck yeah, mom. Yeah. I'm having the Orangina. Like, we're doing do it up, a, mom. Do you have a soda list that I could review? Okay. <laughs> we do that now at Christmas. My my mom, if we go to my mom's house, we do it here too, where like like the, the girls will have champagne. I don't have champagne, so I'm drinking anymore. But then for the kids, you get the, the bottle of Martinelli's sparkling cider. Oh, Martinelli's, yeah. That yeah. <laughs> comes like the pot, like looks like a bottle of champagne. And like, if you're like really Christmassy, you get the cranberry one and you're like, ooh, and you pour it into a champagne food. <laughs> I'm glad they make a rose. That's awesome. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is is Jack- it bad that I've never heard of Orange Gina? Is that that's what it's called? No, no. Okay. You don't. It's fun. I don't. Right. I can't imagine you growing up like, I can't imagine you coming up hard in Detroit and being like, Mom, can I, you go get me some Orangina at the corner market? Like, I think that, that would probably be. But I, we, we, not, we had, we had Fago. Fago was, is the. Oh, yeah, Fago. Yeah. 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 Fago, you know how I, you know I, I know Fago? I only know Fago because of an MTV news segment on the Insane Clown Posse. Yeah. That's, that's how, how most I people know Fago. it. I'm sorry. <laughs> All good. Was Fago was Fago good? Oh, Fago is so- amazing! Like it's so many, uh, you know, like Fago Peach, Rock and Rye, the Ooh, Orange, peach. Fa- yes, Fago Orange. Like Fago goes hard. You could get Fago at Costco's or Sam's Club. Can I? Can I? You did you say Rock and Rye? As rock in and like Rye, caraway, like caraway seed flavored soda. Um, I'm not sure what it's made of, but it's like it's like a rye. And it has rock in it. No, I'm kidding. It's a rye. And then, <laughs> it's like some kind of rye. And like, it's great for an ice cream float. Like by far, like you pour the Fago over ice cream and you make yourself an ice cream float with rock and rye. Mm. Yeah. Right. It's All like right. a sweet, like, I don't want to say barley is not the right word, but like, it's like a sweet root beer. That's what it is. It's a sweet. All right. So it doesn't taste like rye bread. It doesn't taste like. No, 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 no. It tastes like root beer. That's, yeah. That's, I, there need to be more Ashkenazi sodas. I want like a pot roast. <laughs> One, I want a rye bread one. Do you have any, what do you have in a spicy mustard? Spicy mustard soda. Uh, Devin writes in, we'll make this the last one. What are the best and worst names for eponymous bars and restaurants? I was just listening to something referenced, that something that referenced a Ralph's, and I think that's a pretty good one. Meanwhile, my name is Devin, and I am confident that a Devin's would be aggressively avoided. And how does a descriptor change things? Devin's draft house seems like an improvement. It might even last six months. What would be your preferred first name moniker for a bar or, uh, uh, let's say, bad Tex-Mex restaurant that you would go into, <laughs> Jamel? Um, you know what? It, like, if the name does not match what they're trying to represent, like Devin, like if you if, if it was called Devin's Pub, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. Ooh, that yeah. makes sense, right? Yeah. But yep. if it is called like 
um, you know, I don't know, like Carl's Brewery. You might be like, I don't know about this. Like that doesn't seem right. like that, you know, or like Carl's Mexican Tex-Mex joint. You're like, yeah, that'd be perfect. You'd be like, I feel like somebody like, like Carl wouldn't know anything about Tex-Mex. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, is that short for anything? Exactly. You know, any other letters you're leaving off the name? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You know, so, and pinatas. It would be yeah. great. No, one, you would not buy yeah, that I, at all. Like if I went to a, a Jamaican place and it was like Brad's stew chicken, I'd be like, hell no. Nah, I'm not I'm not eating that. I'm not eating that because there's no way somebody named Brad knows how to make great stew chicken. Oh. Jared Eskovich. Yeah. The, <laughs> we've had, there's a big trend in, I guess it's like a few years behind, which is why it's finally hitting the neighborhood that I live in now where you have a definite article on a name and that's the name of your place. So you're like the Milton. And it's, oh, that could be, that could be luxury rentals. That's that right. could be yeah. small plates like and cocktails. Right. Either way, it's just kind of, there's something about it that is not forbidding for me, but where I'm sort of just like, I don't want to pay an extra $5 for the experience of like, the fact that you're playing Bon Iver, but, but it gives, like, but it's it, not like adding value. But it gives me. you. But it, it, now that I think about it, the the in front of it gives it more legitimate, le, more legitimacy than it should have. Like it's very few names you could put the in front of, and it wouldn't work. Like it could be the Drew. You'd be like, oh, I bet they have a. I bet they have a banking brunch at the Drew. <laughs> you would the automatic- they serve yeah you like you would think you know if i said to some of my girlfriends like we're going to the drew they'd be like yes i'm down like let's do that but we love a good expensive if- boozy brunch but if it was we're going to drew's they'd be like what to they're like, like what Bill's what is th- right exactly no. <laughs> they were like what are they serving at drew's is like are we gonna have to like eat like frozen chicken wings that they just Threw in an air fryer and it's like not that good. Yeah. Like yes, it's exclusively tater tots. Oh my goodness! Totally. Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder are our producers. <laughs> Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium, thanks to Roth and me. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to StitcherPremium.com. Use the promo code Distract. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. Subscribe to Defector Two while you're at it. And Jamel Hill, her book is Uphill. And her podcast, she has her own podcast. It's Jamel Hill is Unbothered. That's available also wherever you get your podcast. Jamel Hill, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now you're going to have me thinking about bar names the rest of the day. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. We'll see you guys uh, next week. Goodbye. Thanks.